Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News, where, yes, it's Wednesday, but I got to tell you, the smoke from one of the busiest Tuesdays I can remember in recent history is still clearing in Washington and everywhere else. It is a remarkably newsy week. Whoever said August is a slow month for news never lived through an August, at least not in Washington. So today, this morning, uh, while you were asleep, Remarkably, the United States Senate passed bills that spend nearly $5 trillion of your money. $5 trillion spent in less than 24 hours. Now that is a spending spree. That breaks the American credit card in ways you and I can't imagine. Trillions are the new billions in Washington. We're spending them as though they were candy sticks. Almost $5 trillion were spent and almost all on 50 to 49 votes, uh, certainly on the $3.5 trillion bill passed mid-wee hours of the morning. The $1.2 trillion for infrastructure did pick up 19 Republican votes, including Mitch McConnell. So Republicans certainly supported that. But the $3.5 trillion additional was a straight party line vote, 50-49. One Republican senator couldn't make it because he's staying with his ill wife. Senator Rounds, it wouldn't have mattered because Kamala Harris would have showed up and cast the tie-breaking vote. So Democrats had the votes either way. No reason to doubt that. But just think about what it would take to spend $5 trillion. How, How many dollar bills that is? How far that would stretch into space? Just think how amazing the expenditures are going on in Washington. And that's on top of about three to six trillion we did last year in extra spending for COVID. So we are printing monopoly money, it feels like some days. It's certainly being printed that quick. And the question is, will the economy survive this? Will it drive up inflation? This morning it was 5.4% for the month of June. Why is that important? Well, that means that it was above what our wages are going up. Our wages are going up a few points less than that. So we are beginning less and less buying power the more of this government money we put on the street. That is a concern that Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat, and many Republicans are expressing today. And the real question is, are we mortgaging our future? Are we playing into China's hands who would like to supplant the American dollar as the currency of the world? 
Well, all of these things factor into a complicated picture. You heard the things we talked about yesterday with Patrick, right? Well, a lot there. Now, we've got two amazing guests for you today. We're going to make a lot of news. We're going to do a lot of fun things. So stay tuned. First up is Amy Peacock. She is the chief policy officer at Parler, the great social media. And we're going to talk about big tech and big brother becoming an alliance to quelch your speech to trample on the First Amendment. Very important moment there. And then secondly, we're going to turn to a new group. You may not have heard of yet, but Gina Svoboda from the brand new website, voteref.com. Voteref.com, very easy to remember. It is bringing unprecedented transparency to voting records that have been hard to get in the past. Now they're going to be all on a single website, one-stop shopping. You're going to want to learn about both. Now, speaking of voting... All right. You know, Fulton County, Georgia, we've done some pretty big scoops the last couple of days. One of them was putting out the adjudication log showing what happened to the 5,000 paper logs in Fulton County, Atlanta, the largest county in Georgia, that got rejected by the machines, properly so, by the way. Dominion's machines did the job right. And then they were kicked to humans who had to decide whether a mark for Trump and Biden, which one got it. You saw them. A lot of you reacted to it. Pretty remarkable stuff, right? Well, while that's been going on, we then reported that there was an $85,000 grant that Fulton County took from a very anti-Trump group, the Southern Poverty Law Center. That has been resonating, in that, and some officials in Georgia want that money refunded, right? And then, hang on, today, this morning, my good colleague, Daniel Payne, who we've done a lot of voting election integrity work together. Guess what he found? You ready? I'm not making this up an audit that shows that Fulton County did nothing right. It had no written standard procedures to govern how it conducted the election. It misspent money. It allowed its contractors to overcharge it. They're missing receipts and there's missing sensitive election equipment. Oy vey. Fulton County is a mess. And the question is, why can't the state of Georgia fix it? Remember, just six, seven months ago, we were being told it was a perfect election. Now we know nothing was perfect in Fulton County. It was badly messed up, and it's the largest metropolis for voting in the state of Georgia, which means Georgia couldn't have been perfect. You'd have to have excised Fulton County from Georgia to factually make the claim that it was a perfectly secure and safe election. It was not. And Brad Rassenberger, Governor Kemp, should have known that, and they didn't. Or if they did, they certainly didn't tell us when they gave us those broad sweeping statements. So much to be talking about. Now, we're going to go to a quick commercial break in a second. And then we're going to have Amy Peacock followed by Gina Swoboda. So Parlor followed by VoteRef.com. Two great references and sites and engagement tools for us. But before we do, I want to mention one other thing. Yesterday, Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned from office under pressure, under the weight of a devastating report that alleged important to say alleged, he hasn't been convicted, alleged that he violated federal and state law by, through sexual misconduct and harassment. And he resigned defiantly, saying he doesn't believe the allegations, but he could no longer govern. He's going to step down on August 24th, so just in a few short weeks. But I wanted to go back and remind people that it wasn't just the last few months that it was known that Andrew Cuomo allegedly had a sexual harassment problem, allegedly had a problem with strong women in power who might challenge anything he was doing for two decades, going back to the 1990s when he was HUD secretary for Bill Clinton. These allegations were clearly 
in the public domain. But the media did so much hero worship of this guy, second generation Mario Cuomo's son, blah, 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 four, three terms in New York, brother on CNN, Chris Cuomo. So he gets an Emmy, even though he sent many elderly to nursing homes with COVID spreading the disease. He got hero worship, even though there was overwhelming evidence of constant clashes, potentially inappropriate clashes, hostile working environment between Andrew Cuomo and female subordinates, starting with the inspector general at HUD in the 1990s, all the way up, including a female federal prosecutor in 2013 that looked at corruption in the Cuomo administration to all those 11 women highlighted in the report. This was an open secret, as was his bullying, character-destroying tactics that he used. And it really illustrates, as I wrote this morning, the danger of when reporters stop being neutral arbiters of fact and become hero worshipers of one party or the other. Neither is good. It happens on both sides, and neither is good. At the end of the day, think about that as we're heading to this commercial break. When we come back, first up, yep, Amy Peacock from Parler, followed by Gina Swoboda at VoteRef.com. Two amazing sites, two amazing tools for engagement you should know about. We're going to talk about them right after this. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS. They know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000 or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, one of my favorite guests to bring on this show. Her name is Amy Peacock. She is the chief policy officer of one of my favorite social platforms. Uh, and every day, if you're not on Parlor, you're missing really important stuff. And that's where Amy oversees all of the policy issues. She's written some amazing op-eds and is here to talk about a big issue, which is, is big tech in danger of becoming big brother? Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, John. It is an honor to have you on. And I want to just start with because everybody's always curious. How's Parler doing? How is the rebuild doing? Because you guys went through a major makeover. Uh, I use it every day. I know it's doing pretty well. And I see our audience engaging all day from it. But give us your first-hand account. How are things going on under the hood at Parler? And uh, what sort of features and opportunities are lie ahead for the great audience you've assembled? Yeah, so thank you. And thanks for being on there and being active because I really do think the future of free speech is a platform like Parler. I'm very partial to Parler, of course, but you know, one that is not 
conducting any sort of censorship of legal speech. But besides that, we are putting together a product that is going to, in the long term, provide a superlative user interface and experience, and we are working every day to build that. It is a process. Uh, You may have seen various other competing platforms try to get up and and have issues, uh, big issues, tech-wise and otherwise, and we know that this is a marathon. This is not a sprint over at Parlor. And even though we're doing this while we're up and running, we are trying to be as careful as possible as we're expanding and bringing in new features to not break what we already have. And, and that's the process that we're in. So as you've seen, if you've been on there, little improvements every day. And we're at a point where it's quite stable and the user experience is is good, but it's only going to get better as the year goes on. We're going to have new apps for Android and iOS by the year end is what I'm hearing. Uh, But, you know, it's a process. And so, yeah, we invite people to come on over and experience it. If you didn't know that we're up and running and stable, come check it out. We're up on the Apple app store. We are not up on Google. We'll see what happens with that because, Android offers a side-loading alternative, so it's, you know, whether we're going to go into the Google Play Store or not remains to be decided, but yeah, every day it's getting better and better, and we've got advertisers on board and everything. It's looking up. Well, it is looking up, and I love it. I use it all day long, and it's a great place for me. I don't do opinion, but I love to share our stories and get a dialogue going, and the audience there is smart, it's engaged, and it is a platform that really fill the need at a historic moment in in America's evolution on this question of free speech. I never thought we'd have an evolution on free speech. It always seemed like it was something that was going to be guaranteed, but the last five years have shown us that that is not the case. Just yesterday, uh, YouTube deplatformed for seven days, uh, Rand Paul, and almost every day we have a reminder. Yeah, it's remarkable. And um, I wonder, you know, you're you you're in charge of policy. This is your arena and you're in the social you're a social giant now. Um, when you look at these issues, uh, what comes to mind in terms of the American experience of the last 246 years and what we're living through right now? I mean, to me, this is the front line free speech on social media. Why? Because these platforms both share crucial information out there to people. You know, there's been a number of surveys that talk about the fact that many people get their news from social media. So it's a disseminator of crucial information. Right. And at the same time, at least in, you know, our competitors do this to a very large degree, parlor much less so, uh, they gather personal information about people. So they're both, you know, disseminating crucial information and they're taking in some of the most personal information about people. And what we're seeing lately, especially very recently and very openly, is this entanglement between big government and big tech. And that, if you really keep going down this path, is a recipe for spawning Big Brother from Orwell's 1984. And to me, that is, of course, a nightmare. It's it's the end of freedom. Yeah, no, it really is. And so many of the people I talk to uh, on all sides of the equation, you have true lifelong liberals who are just as troubled about what's happened as what are uh, some of the conservatives who've actually experienced it firsthand. You wrote a pretty remarkable 
uh, op-ed about a week ago, maybe a little less than a week ago, in Real Clear Policy. It was one of my favorites uh, because it really walked through this debate. Everybody wants to get rid of Section 230 now and, and find a way to open up a legal avenue to punish up big tech um, uh, for its censorship. Tell us a little bit about what you see in that debate and where you think, as a policy expert, the sweet spot is for dealing with this issue of censorship by the big tech giants. Yeah, well, you know, the first thing is to recognize that, yes, there is an issue. And, you know, there are a couple things that play into it. You know, first of all, of course, are the, the practices of the leading platforms in terms of these engagement enhancing algorithms that end up creating more divisiveness in the culture. And then I think, you know, being responsible in some part for the type of content that has become problematic uh, Section 230, as you know, of the Communications Decency Act, it provides legal immunity to platforms and says that insofar as a user provides content, then it's the user who has primary legal liability for that content. So there's legal immunity for these platforms. In the opinion of Justice Clarence Thomas and others, that immunity has been applied in an overbroad manner. And so it has put a lot of what these other platforms have done basically beyond the reach of any legal liability or legal consequences or accountability. So, you know, you could file a lawsuit and it would just be dismissed and there'd never be any discovery into what was actually going on, et cetera. And it was hard to figure out what's in there. Um, what we've seen in the last couple of years is government officials, you know, with a series of carrots and sticks getting these big tech platforms to remove content that they find objectionable. And this is legal content. This is not violence inciting content or other types of rights violations. This is so-called hate speech that isn't incitement. This is so-called misinformation that isn't libelous, right? This is stuff that wouldn't have any legal accountability. And yet, government is pressuring the platforms to remove this content, stuff that the government itself could not censor directly, consistent with our First Amendment. And we see this happening more and more. The most blatant example was a few weeks ago where we see the Biden administration just openly talking about the fact that they go to Facebook and tell Facebook what is misinformation and right. what they should be restricting or taking down. Uh, this is just blatant. And, and so the idea that you've got government telling platforms what to do and you have platforms, you know, I don't know if you've seen, but Facebook has put both the New York Times and LinkedIn advertisements openly calling for government to tell them to do more of this. <laughs> uh, most recently within the last week. Yeah, most recently within the last week, there was one of these ads on LinkedIn and it says, you know, the old internet regulations are outdated and we need a new one that uh, regulates, quote, misinformation. They use the word misinformation in the ad itself. Unbelievable. And so they're openly calling for government to censor. Um, so when you have this, right, you have this, you have what's called a state action problem. Um, you know, I think that the big tech companies are doing more than just giving into pressure. They are part of the problem. It's a kind of cronyist censorship that's going on. It's a, It's both 
the actions of the big tech companies and government. So when you have this cronyous censorship and it's being protected by this overbroad 230, how do you handle it? You know, what do you do? And, you know, some people say, well, let's amend 230, let's repeal 230. No, the basic idea, the principle behind 230 is right, that it's the individual user that would be liable for any content on the platform. Um, So instead, we need a more narrowly tailored implementation, interpretation of Section 230. That's what uh, Justice Clarence Thomas recommends. And I think the best way to do it, ironically, because I'm not a Trump voter, but I think the best way to do it is a lawsuit like the one that Trump has filed recently. It's a class action lawsuit against Facebook, against Twitter, that that sort of lawsuit has the potential to hold these platforms accountable and to surgically excise this cronious censorship that's such a risk right now. It does think that it does seem like that lawsuit has the potential, particularly the signals that the Supreme Court is giving to become mm-hmm. an epic free speech case, maybe, you know, up there with things like Times versus Sullivan and, and things like that. It, it just feels like it's setting up that way. In your mind, what I, I want to make sure I understand what you just said and also what you wrote in the op-ed. You want to preserve 230 for the things it was designed to do, which is hold social media platform harmless for things that other people do that's not within their control. But I think you want to carve out the idea that somehow this is a blanket license to go censor and deplatform people based on political or other determinations. Is that a, is that a fair assessment of where you are and in, in where Parler is in this position? Yes, no, definitely. There are sort of very legal philosophical questions that you could ask about whether this should have been encoded in legislation in the first place, or is it something that should have been a principle of common law? But the principle itself is correct, right? The principle that if there is such thing as a platform, it's viable to have a business, you know, it's not an illegal thing, it's not an inherently bad thing to provide a platform by which other people can publish, you know, individual users can publish content on your platform. That's a legitimate business. And to say that there's a principle in the law that wouldn't hold you liable for content that you neither know or have reason to know is problematic in the sense of illegal. um, That, I mean, that's a good principle, which way to implement it and not cause any you know, externality, so to speak. That's the question. And so I'm open to the idea that a Section 230, because it provides uniformity, is not a bad way to do it. But I agree with Justice Thomas. If if people want to go look up what Thomas has to say about this, he made a statement in connection with the denial of certiorari in Malware Bites versus Enigma. And he lays out very clearly what he thinks, you know, that the platform should be held liable for their contribution to the content. And there's various types of contributions that the platforms make either to the content itself or to the visibility of the content, et cetera. And people should be more able to bring a cause of action about their contributions than they often have been. 
Yep, it's a very good point. And I've heard other people make the argument that the grant of immunity under Section 230 should hold Facebook to the same standards as government agencies, which have similar immunity on the grounds of censorship, which is government agencies can't censor. And therefore, those who get the government's extension of immunity shouldn't censor. It'll be interesting to see if any of those arguments make their way to the Supreme Court when it's done. But what a, what an amazing time. And I have to tell you, I didn't think in my lifetime I'd ever see a debate like this. It always had been settled that we just don't censor each other. We tolerate even if we don't like other people's opinions because that's what America has in the root of its DNA. And and now we live in a period where some people, a large number of people, actually think censorship is good. And I want to flip to that issue now because it isn't just big tech that's been doing this. There is a law uh, being proposed by Senator Klobuchar and uh, Senator Lujan that would actually empower the government to enforce censorship when it came to health misinformation. It's called the Health Misinformation Act. And I know you are totally up on this because you wrote another great uh, op-ed that's right now, just at the top of the Federalist page. So go to the Federalist, check this out. Tell us a little bit about what gives you Pepsit heartburn when you see what uh, Senator Klobuchar and Lujan have done on the Health Misinformation Act. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just one after the other, it seems. Right. So after we watch the Biden administration announce that they're going to be pressuring Facebook and others to remove health misinformation, then we see that they want to actually write it into law. They want to amend Section 230 so that this is the the case. I mean, all we have to do is sort of look at the last 18 months or so of the official line on mask wearing, you know, what is the official position on vaccines or on possible treatments for COVID or on the origins of this virus? You know, was it leaked from a Wuhan lab or not? Uh, If we had gone only by what the official position was on this and you weren't allowed to even explore any alternatives, then we would not be learning the truth about crucial issues out there. And instead of, you know, our government agencies realizing that maybe they haven't handled the dissemination of information so well during this pandemic, which they have not, um, you think they just own their mistakes and that they wouldn't double down in this way because what she's proposing is that nobody be allowed to question whatever the current official position is on anything. And that is not a way that is not scientific. You know, they always say that they're proponents of science, that they believe in the science, they follow the science. Science is a method, right? It's a method by which you realize that you don't know everything that you're going to observe and you're going to use your reason based on observation to try to develop more and more certainty about a particular issue. Uh, We're not going to be permitted to do that if the government gets to clamp down on so-called misinformation. They're going to dictate what the truth is. You remember mini-truth from Orwell's 1984? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, that's what would come out of something like this. It's it's truly unbelievable that it can even be proposed. Yeah, no, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more. There is a moment now where 
if we were doing the Alice in Wonderland looking glass, we'd say, who is that? That's not America right now. That, that can't be America. And you know we're in trouble when countries like Mexico and Germany, which don't have great long histories of free speech, are lecturing the Americas saying, I can't believe what's going on in America. They're, they're, they're censoring people. They censored their president. It's, it's, un, it's an un, you know, really remarkable moment. I, I, I want to wrap up because I know your time is important, but I want to ask one last question. How important is creating the new ecosystem that can be equal and opposite and equal and competitive in the marketplace with the monopolies that have become Facebook and Twitter and YouTube? How important is creating that? And how confident are you that the ecosystem that's being built, you know, there's Rumble, View, Cloud Hub, Getter. Uh, there's talk that maybe President Trump will throw his hat in there as well. How confident are you that the alternative, the free speech alternatives will be as good, as robust, as widespread as what Facebook and Twitter have created for the rest of America? So I think the question is framed in a way that isn't necessary, really. You know, as long as there's not totalitarian control by our competition. Right. All we need to do is be able to have a substantial and vocal and articulate and intelligent minority out there offering an alternative. Uh, The danger comes if, for example, they modify Section 230 in a way that requires everybody to behave like Twitter and Facebook and therefore everybody has to uh, essentially get swallowed up by Twitter and Facebook, right? Um, But as long as we have a semi-free market and we are able to continue to pursue through the courts any surgical excision of cronious censorship that we can, and alongside that, we keep building up a viable alternative that isn't subject to that whole regime, then we can win. I mean, this is still an open battle, but, you know, it's getting tougher and tougher each day. And as I said, I was, a you know, bit taken aback by Klobuchar's uh, proposal because it doesn't seem at all consistent with freedom and with allowing for, you know, alternatives to be presented out there on a free market. Yeah, such a good point. What a great point. Well, that's why we like having you on, Amy. You make really great points in that you're educating us and you're fighting and not just talking about stuff. You and Parler are fighting for free speech and for that. We're incredibly grateful. We'll get you back on soon uh, for an update. We can't wait to see all the new features coming down the road from from our good friends at Parlor. Thanks very much, John. Yeah, pleasure to have you. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we've got some more news for you. Hold on tight. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending the freedoms that made this country great and to ensure that we secure our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, and entertainment, and of course, special insurance rates, one of the things I like. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews. And for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews and extend the invitation to a friend 
or a family member for free. What a great opportunity. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, I want to take you to a new website today. It's called VoteRef.com. If you haven't checked it out, it's about a week old. It is a remarkable new tool to help you as voters make up your own mind about what's going on in your state or in the country when it comes to voting rights, voter integrity. It is a tremendous new site, and we're lucky enough to have its executive director joining us today. Her name is Gina Svoboda, and I'd like to welcome you to the show. Gina, welcome. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be with you. I love this site because I love data. I'm a data nerd. I, I, even though I went to school to journalism, I also did social statistics. I love data. And you guys are putting up some really meaningful data. Tell, uh, tell our audience what you're doing and why it's so important. Thank you. Um, so VoteRef.com is creating a permanent reference source for the American people. It is a complete record of the full voter registration list as well as the vote histories. Voting starts with the voter registration list that determines who's eligible to cast the ballot. And at the end of the day, the history of everyone who has voted is maintained in that list. It's the most important piece of data with regard to elections. I love it. What a great idea. I mean, these are things that sometimes the political parties go get, but they keep it to themselves. But now everybody can go look and see. And there are fun things you can do with this. Like you can check and see if there, if John Solomon is registered in New York, Virginia and Connecticut. Is he voting three times and have the secretaries of state did it? And the answer is no for me, but maybe there's another John Solomon out there. I don't know. But um, uh, there is some really important uh, uh, fact checking that can be done and integrity checking that can be done with this. And I, I just love the idea. Now, you have a nonprofit foundation that's supporting this, right? We do. We're a nonprofit created by Restoration Action, which is a well-known educational 501c4. Right. There is nothing more educational than shining light and providing transparency in our election system. Um, and we're excited. The public has expressed an unforeseen before this cycle. I've always loved elections. I am a geek such as yourself with the data. I love it. <laughs> but the public has not always been open to learning about the process. Yeah. So they're ready and we're going to give them the data and a tool. They can go in, you know, they can look at, at how things work and they can learn. It's amazing. What a great idea. And this is nonpartisan, right? This isn't trying to achieve one party over the it other. Is. It's about it's about giving the American people an opportunity to to see data that should have been. Actually, it's never been easy to get this data. That's one of the you've made it easy now, which is great. That, that's right. You know, the election records are technically public records, but the general public usually has not had easy access to them in a usable format. The files are very large. The average person's desktop computer or laptop can't handle that amount of raw data. All the records that you see on votelefts.com are certified by the election officials. There's no interpretation happening. It's just these are the numbers certified by the election officials. Here they are in an easily viewable format for free forever. Yeah, what a great what a great idea. And making it simple does something else because we live in this great era of digital community. And one of the things that could be done now is we could actually crowdsource projects, right? People can go out and do some comparisons and maybe the Wisconsin people talk to the Georgia people and you crowdsource and you learn things and discover things that could future benefit secretaries of states, election regulators, legislators who set the rules. Um, do you have any early crowdsource projects in mind that you think, boy, this would be great if people jumped all in together and started crunching data together and looked for patterns? 
We do not, but I will say that there are a lot of groups on the ground across the country that have been making efforts to assure election integrity in their jurisdictions. And this is, as you say, the ideal tool for crowdsourcing. So it's accurate, complete data. It is exportable. Uh, You would never want to use it for a commercial purpose. And there is a pop-up that will tell you that. That's one of the conditions of downloading off the site. Sure. But it gives people accurate access to tools that might help uh, in the work that they wish to do. You know, the, the country's founded on citizen participation, right? So the system is only ever as good as the public makes sure that it is by their participation. So this is a tool It's a a permanent reference library, if you will. It's up to the people, the American people, to go in. We will share with them, here is the data. Have at it. Make the system better. Such a great idea. 246 years ago, we had candle makers and and, uh, blacksmiths and and publishers and, and small businessmen and women in 1776 participating to create a great new experiment called America. And today with some of uh, America's best values under attack. Here's a chance for all of us, even though we're busy, to dive in and maybe take a look at this data and look for things, look for concerns, help out your Secretary of State, help out your local election regulator by perusing the data and making sure that everything is on the up and up. That's a really cool idea. Now, you guys have already released one bunch of data and it uh it created an instant kerfuffle in uh, the great state of nevada you guys put out some data showing that the people currently in the registered voter file don't match the total number of votes that were cast in november in nevada so there's a gap i think it's about what nine thousand votes does that sound right yes eight thousand nine hundred and fifty two wow and so, you know, well, what's up with that? Now, obviously, in fairness, records are always changing. So the voter file is frozen on the day you obtained it in June. The vote took place in November 3rd. So a debate starts in Nevada. And a funny thing happened. The Secretary of State Nevada had a weigh in. Tell us what she told the public as a result of your data research. So this is a great example of why uh, votereps.com is a good tool. When we published the data, we did speak to the Nevada Secretary of State's office. We showed them our results. We verified, you know, please make sure we don't have any protected voters on here. And we had a discussion and the press release that they issued after we went live with the site confirmed what they had told us, which is basically when a voter moves from one county to another in the state of Nevada, or if they receive certification that a voter is, has passed away and is deceased, they delete that voter registration record inclusive of the total vote history of that elector. That is a big deal. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, there's, me, no, I mean, there's no way to go back and audit it now. It's gone. Yeah, I, I would say that does absolutely create a problem if uh, you're trying to reconcile the total number of ballots that were cast with the total number of voters in that jurisdiction who voted. And I, I think that's that's knowledge, right? That is something that um, the public probably was not aware of, by and large, in the state of Nevada. And that's a public policy discussion that the citizens of Nevada can have with their legislature and, and with their chief elections officer. Is this how we want to carry on for the next two cycles? I know that the Nevada legislature did pass a bill. They want to create a, a kind of top-down statewide voter registration database. But based on my discussions with them, that would not be fully, fully operational until sometime in 2025. So that would suggest that we will have two more election cycles where 
the number of ballots cast and the number of voters who voted in that jurisdiction will not reconcile uh, for at least the next two cycles. So, again, the voter registration databases are huge, but our whole process hinges on them being accurate. So, you know, they have to be accurate. The, The people, like poll after poll right now, are showing that the American public is lacking confidence in the integrity of the elections process, right? So the key to reversing that trend and making sure we have participation is transparency. So this is a great example. We got the certified records, they're public records, we put them out there, and the chief elections official in Nevada says, hey, you know what, records get deleted. So we will look into that, you know, we will uh, FOIA um, and see from the counties, you know, how many people were deleted due to moving uh, or death. But going forward, overall, this is a great experience. The people of Nevada now know records are being deleted. Uh, If they're not happy with that, there is a a process for that in our beautiful, amazing constitutional republic. They can speak to their legislators and speak to their chief election official and maybe change their process if, if that's not satisfactory to them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that that's the opportunity here, right? To find gaps or problems and close those gaps so that we just get better and better in our voting system. There was some guidance sent out recently by the Justice Department, mostly in response to conservatives who want to do post-election audits, right? But one of the things that it went out of its way to say is that it could be a crime if somebody destroys or deletes information from an election. Given that, are there any concerns about what the Secretary of State in Nevada has now said she did, which is she's deleted these voter records that show who voted in the 2020 election? Um, uh, have you guys thought about that? Is that something you might pursue further? Should someone else pursue it? What, what are you seeing here as you dig through it? Thank you. So, again, like taking a step back, that's why vote ref exists. If the Nevada Secretary of State indicates voter registration histories were deleted from the last election. While I can't speak to the legality of that, it shows that putting the data out there provides information about the process. The public wants to engage in the policy. They understand the process. Everything that we learn is a positive, right? We're going to keep putting out the facts. As far as the legality of deleting a voter registration history, that's outside my wheelhouse. I'm in my nonpartisan lane just publishing the data But the public is now aware of it and uh, people can make of that, you know, what they will and address the public policy discussion of how do we want to handle these records going forward? And do we think that they should be maintained in a permanent matter? Does that fall under election materials? That that's a matter uh, for legal debate. And and that's kind of outside my wheelhouse. Sure. Without a doubt. There's no doubt. And that's why that's so important. But you started a debate that we just simply weren't having. And I think that that's, that's, right. that's right. such an important part of this project and why groups like yours, which have now sprung to life, bring such value to the American taxpayer and to the voter in, their, in all these jurisdictions whose data will now be public for the first time, or easily public, I should say. When you look out at this and see, what, what do you hope five years from now happens with this? In five years now, what will the American election system look like as a result of what Voter Ref has been able to put together already? You know, my deepest hope is that the public stays engaged in the process, has faith in the process. The voter rolls, the voter lists are actively maintained. We have federal regulations and state laws about how that maintenance is done. You know, I always say I love our elections process. And I love the people that work within it. Right. 
a lot of these offices are understaffed and underfunded. And part of the policy discussion, what I hope will come out of it, is what is the priority to our state legislatures and our election officials? You know, what is their, our funding priority, right? I mean, for me, there are a lot of things I, I, on a personal level, admire the election officials so much, Don. Um, but there has to be a discussion about the appropriate funding. You know, if you're in a county and you have strange resources and you can't maintain your voter list properly, you know, you have to get with your legislature and say, hey, I, you know, we need an appropriation bill. There's a lot of spending going on right now at, at federal levels. Where is the priority? Where is the investment into the election system? What's, what is important to the people? Because it has to come from the people. And it, you can't have um, a, a process that's filled with integrity if the very structure of that process is a mess. And in some cases, it's a mess. And whether that's funding or sloppy record keeping or just a virtue of short timeline and a massive volume coming in, we need to provide these offices with the resources they need to execute well, because everything in our system of government flows from the people and the people's confidence in the system. So my hope is in five years, after having published this data and the public becoming aware that, hey, you know, this is how it works. And look, you know, we, we need to make sure there's resources to do this properly, that we can work with the election officials you know, be an aid in, in helping people crowdsource information to them, taking the proper steps to maintain those roles properly. So everybody's got faith in the system and we carry forward in, you know, a more united way. I mean, we have to believe in each other. We have to believe in the system. And to do that, the voter registration list has to be accurate. It just has to. Yep, it does. And we can't be destroying it, so we can't go back and look and recreate it, which is an important, I think, discovery that this early, very first project that you took on reveals. Other states are forthcoming, right? We're going to see more comparison numbers between the voter rolls and the actual votes counted in the next few weeks. Is that right? They are. They are. By the end of the year, we'll have a significant number of states published. Um, oh, how cool. We're very excited about it. You know, we're going through our process. Uh, we're vetting the data. And it's exciting. It sure is. It's a great time. How do people stay in touch with what you're doing beyond the easy to remember URL, voterref.org? Where, where else can they stay in touch with you guys on social media, uh, emails, any way that if they want to follow, what can they do? Sure. Um, please email. It's info at voterreferencefoundation.com. If you email us and you let us know, you, you know, like to us to reach out to you when we launch the next state, we will do so. Um, if there's uh, anything that you want to let us know about, feel free to do that as well. Info at voterreferencefoundation.com. Wonderful. That's really, really great. Well, we're so grateful for what you're doing, and we encourage everyone here to check it out. We're going to have a story tomorrow on this whole Nevada brouhaha. Really exciting, and uh, we're, we're really uh, really glad that you've done this, and we can't wait to see what other things, Gina, you guys uh, put out to the American public in the days coming. Thank you so much, John. It's been an honor to be with you, and it's an honor to be doing this work. Well, same here, and we can't wait to do more of it. Congrats. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, it's time to wrap things up for the day. We'll be right back right after this great advertising message. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out. 
higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friend who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group. Text Just News to 989898 right now. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Report. So glad you can join us. Hope you enjoyed Amy's and Gina's interviews. A lot of good tools there. A lot of Section 230 stuff to be thinking about. Big tech and big brother, big election gov, big Mark Zuckerberg money. A lot to think about. Is this, I want to ask this question. In fact, every day my reporting since I started my career 30 plus years ago has been aimed to answer this question. Is this the America we want to be living in? And all throughout my career, I have focused on that. After 9-11, when I discovered all the failures of the intelligence agency, I asked the question, is this the America we want to live in or should we fix the FBI and the CIA? I think people answered that resoundingly. Back in the 1990s when I did the FBI lab exposés where the FBI was cheating, it continued all the way up into 2006 with a major project I did with 60 Minutes that showed bogus science being practiced at the FBI. I asked the question, is this the America we want to be living in today on all the stories we do at Just the News, whether they're censorship stories, fraud stories, election integrity issues? We're asking this question, is this the America you and I want to be living in. Can we make it better? We don't do it to denigrate America. We do it to keep America great and to keep pressing it to have transparency, honesty, accuracy, and a factual basis by which we all can make decisions because facts are neutral. Politics and interpretations aren't. And I hope every day we live up to that challenge for you. That's why we have the dig in tool to give you transparency. It's why we cover what we do, why we don't have an opinion section. We stay focused on news and facts and documents and memos and tangible things you can look at and then decide yourself. Make up your own mind. We're not here to indoctrinate, only to inform. Thank you for listening. God bless you and God bless this amazing country of the United States, as he always has. We'll be back tomorrow with another great edition of John Solomon Reports. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with 
gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 98 98 right now.